The following podcast was originally aired over an FM broadcast on 91.7 FM in Madison, Wisconsin. It originally aired on Tuesday, October 24th, 2023 at 4 p.m. This is Radio 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 Resistance. Hi everyone, you're tuned into WSUM 91.7 FM Madison, Wisconsin, and you're now listening to Radio Resistance. I'm your host, Sir Yavir, aka DJ Sunray. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the program, Radio Resistance is a culture and art show where we touch on a new city, country, or region each week. Throughout our journey, in each episode, we'll share some interesting history, listen to some amazing music, share some fun facts, tell incredible stories, chat with friends, and much, much more. The common theme embedded into this radio show is, you guessed it, resistance. Our mission is to highlight stories and struggles that have taken place elsewhere to inspire all of us listening at home, while also introducing you to some unique music you may have never heard before. Today's episode is a bit of an interesting one because it will be a little experimental in nature. I'm afraid it won't have the same kind of structure as a traditional radio resistance episode may have. Usually on Radio Resistance, we center upon a region and talk about the struggle of its people in conjunction with its history. However, this week, I wanted to do something a little different. I feel like I tend to talk quite a lot on this show, so this week, I wanted to give more of a voice to the inspirations that I have listened to, read, and drawn from throughout my life. Some of these great figures are people I'm sure you're familiar with, and I hope that I can pass on some of this inspiration over the great airwaves. This show focuses a lot on movements that have occurred around the world, but a lot of my knowledge on themes of resistance and struggle have come from what I've learned about my own country. I'm American, and I imagine a lot of you are American as well. There's a lot of work to be done in this country, but there's also a lot of great work that has been done, and there are so many people in this country whom I am grateful to for imparting their knowledge through books, music, film, etc., There are countless struggles that have existed here in the country, and I will do my best to give voice to many of them in this episode through various sound bites and musical selections. I think when we talk about both resistance and oppression, we often forget about identity. At the end of the day, the most brutal dictator and the most enlightened scholar are still two normal human beings who must lay their heads to rest, who must live off the nourishment of the earth, and who by default must process love, happiness, anger, and misery in some way or another. We're all human beings, some of us deeply hurt and imbued with ire, others hedonistic and heretical, and still others overflowing with joy and love for one another. It is through our humanity that we are united and alive, all of us, in everything that makes us feel and everything that gives us breath.
When we think specifically about America, this idea of identity is even more important. In a country constructed, manipulated, shaped, and transformed through the influence of so many players, how do we tackle this idea of what it truly means to be an American? We have conceptual tropes like the American dream that try to give an emblematic meaning to the American experience. But we see that this vision is simply not the same for all Americans. There have existed many struggles in this country, and to face these struggles, great voices of resistance have taken the national stage. Today, I want to highlight them within the confines of the one-hour time slot that I am bestowed with, while also incorporating their voices as best as I can. Starting off strong with one of the most prolific American writers of the 20th century, our first highlighted thinker is someone whose influence cannot be understated. James Baldwin was born in Harlem, New York, and he is known for being one of the most profound black voices the nation has ever heard. Baldwin's work has always walked across the lines of our deepest personal questions as human beings, and how these questions build the social and cultural fabric that envelop us. Baldwin draws on themes of race, class, sexuality, and masculinity in an often autobiographical context to paint one of the most real portrayals of America. In a 1960 interview with Canadian broadcaster Nathan Cohen, Baldwin talks about the evolution of the black experience in the U.S., but more importantly, the nature of class in the U.S. and how it has so deeply affected the American ethos. In some way, the, the American vision of the world is all wrapped up with their vision of black men, which has to do, their, has to do with their vision of themselves. Black is evil. The saved are white. Now, there's certainly a thread which connects this reality to, uh, which it may, makes, and makes it possible for uh, the Secretary of State to say, we will not do business with the devil. It is not a southern problem. It is a national problem. What is happening in New Orleans today began to happen over a hundred years ago when in effect the North, which was the government, having freed tens of thousands of illiterate black men, they made no provision for them, none whatever, none whatever. They were dumped on the body politic and no one was responsible for them. And they were, of course, immediately political and, and industrial footballs for everybody. They were everybody's target. But in a way, black men were very useful to the American because in a country so absolutely undefined, so amorphous, where there were no limits, no height, really, and, and no depth, there was one thing of which one could be certain. One knew where one was by knowing where the Negro was. You knew that you were not on the bottom because the Negro was, the Negro was there. You knew one knows what sin is in the same way. One knows what danger is in the same way. Now, this implies a vision of oneself, it seems to me, and a vision of the world which doesn't stop at the American borders. It is also the way America deals with the world. It must, cannot possibly avoid moving directly into the heart of the people who make up America. I mean, I, I mean that the problem will never be resolved until everybody in the country, in some way, I know how impossible this sounds, however, this is what has to happen, is able, 
is somehow enabled to do without this crutch. If I were going to describe, I can't name names, so a hypothetical white liberal. Well, I know what he thinks he's doing. But what he's mainly doing is something which demands my tacit cooperation. He, I have to agree that I am what he says I am in order for us to have any dialogue at all. Now, if I don't agree that uh, he is what he, what, what, what he, what he, you know, what I, I am what he thinks I am, then inevitably, and I, you know, one sees this at once in the face of so the people you're, you, you're, you're dealing with, it means that if I'm not what he takes me to be, that means I have a, I have a standard of judgment which is not his, which I may then be using to judge him. And which may cut the ground from under, under all the standards. All the other, yeah, exactly. Do you regard this as a, as a distinct threat to the, what shall I call it, the, uh, the sense of spiritual security, American? I think American, I think the Americans essentially, I don't think this, I know this. Yes, this is a threat to the American personality as it has so far been constituted. It's a threat to every, it is a threat to their definition of the world. It is a, it is a threat to, their, to the way they, what they think reality is. And I also mean to imply something else. Um, let me put it personally, it's the safest way to put it. Um, there is something in me, for example, you know, sometimes, and certainly when I was much younger, which resented the assumption on which all these things are based. It assumes that you have something I want. That um, there, is, there really isn't on the basis of it. Just looking at the evidence. Any reason for white people to assume that Negroes want to be like them? It's very difficult. I have, I have said in effect that white men must give up what is, in effect, a crutch. Right. So must I. This is entirely true. There is something very safe about being a Negro in a way because <sighs> you can blame anything that happens to you on it. And this is the worst thing about being a Negro, quite apart now from New Orleans, race rides, lynchings, etc., etc. The worst thing about it is at one point, somewhere in yourself, you have to realize that, all right, you are a Negro, and this is all true, but before that, you are a man, and your life is in your hands. You are responsible for what happens to you. You cannot blame anybody for it. There is no point. There is no one to blame. No, I can't. I can't. I can't imagine. I can't imagine being anyone other than who I am. But I don't think that, like, uh, that makes as much difference as it used to. Uh, I went to Fielsen, the Fielsen Schools of Ethical Culture. I had a very unique experience. I was the first um, black student to go to a white school in Tennessee. Uh, I went to Tiger Junior High School when I was like 13 years old. Uh, this was during the integration period uh, when they were just starting to integrate the schools in Western Tennessee. Uh, I went from there to, uh, to the Bronx, and uh, 
went to a multi-ethnic, multi-racial school, uh, junior high school, Creston Junior High School, where they were like all boys. Then I went to Clinton. There were 8,000 boys there. Then I went to Fieldston, where I was one of only five black students. Uh, I went to Lincoln University, where I was one of the only, uh, one of the only people who'd ever gone to school with white folks. And then I got my master's from Johns Hopkins, hmm. where I was just about the only black person in Baltimore. So, hmm. from those situations there, I think I've had a very well-rounded sort of education at least. Uh, but I was born in Chicago, uh, born in Providence Hospital, and uh, lived there for a couple of years. So, uh, you've hung out with white people some, with different races. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, what's the difference between? Amigos in la aula, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what's you know, what's the difference between races? Where is it? Is it a cultural thing? Is it a? It's it's not just skin deep, is it? No, I think it's a tradition. You know, I think it has a lot to do with what you're taught. Uh, I was taught that I was as, as as that the possibilities I had were as broad as anyone's, and that I should take advantage of the opportunities that were opening themselves to me as the '60s opened. And uh, uh, I think that, that that a lot of it is is, is, is mostly. Um, emotional, because anytime I see a youngster now with a rebel flag and a, a, a whole lot of a lot of action that goes in that direction, I know that that's something he never experienced. So I know that that's something that he was taught, and I feel I feel feel as though it's something that his his parents were lacking in terms of their own culture, their own character that, that makes that that kind of thing happen. So there was a lot of change in in the '60s, but. Uh is there still a ways to go combating racism? Oh yeah, yeah. I think that I think that education is, is the biggest thing, yeah, the, the, the most the most important thing. Um, as music has, has has done a lot. I think when the Beatles came over and said that they'd been listening to Ray Charles and BB King and those kind of people, that that, that showed a lot of people that that, that that in other areas the home team is what's important. You see, when you're in France, the French people don't don't have those kind of hangups because they're home. I think that the fact that, 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 that we're not Americans, that, that the Indians are the Americans here, that we're all, all foreigners in a sense, has kept, has kept a lot of alienation going on, and a lot, a, lot of, a lot of jealousy, a lot of inferiority, and a lot, a lot of complexes built up. Huh. And uh, are you in touch with what's going on in the Native American movements? Or well, I've tried, I've tried, I've tried to be involved. Well, when we were in uh, Arizona and in New Mexico, we met a lot of folks who were Native Americans and got involved with some of the programs they were doing, including Big Mountain. You tour around a lot, I guess. Yeah, we do a lot of tour. So uh, the revolution wasn't televised in the 60s. Uh, is it going to be televised in the 90s? Well, you know, the, the, the catchphrase, what that was all about, uh, the revolution will not be televised. That was about the fact that the first change that takes place is in your mind. You have to change your mind before you change the way you live and the way you move. So when we said that the revolution will not be televised, we were saying that, like, that, that, that the thing that's going to change people is something that no one will ever be able to capture on film. It'll just be something that you see and all of a sudden you realize, I'm on the wrong page. Or I'm on the right page, but I'm on the wrong note. And I've got to get in sync with everyone else to understand what's happening in this country. Uh -huh. But I think that the black Americans have been the, the, the only real diehard Americans here because we, we're the only ones who, who've carried the process through the process. That everyone else has sort of like 
skip stages. We're the ones who marched, we're the ones who carried the Bible, we're the ones who carried the flag, we're the ones who tried to go through the courts. And, 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 and being born American didn't, didn't seem to matter because we were born Americans, but we still had to fight for what we were looking for. And we still had to go through those channels and those processes. And do you see the fight going on today? I see that it's necessary. I see that everything that they take to the Supreme Court is something that should have been decided ages ago, and they're trying to re-decide it and readdress it, because, because evidently the, 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 the majority is, is, is not important when it comes to law. I think that the NAACP and that was the most important organization that they've had in, in this century because of the way they attacked the, the system by taking it to the, to the courts. The revolution was not televised in the 60s, it was not televised in the 90s, and it won't be televised in the 2020s. Who you just heard from was another prolific voice for the black struggle in America who may be a little less known. That was author, artist, and activist Gil Scott Heron. Scott Heron is one of my favorite artists ever. Many coin him as the founding father of hip-hop for his contributions to poetry and spoken word. His lyrics have a timeless energy and life behind them that made him a major yet polarizing force in the American music scene in the 70s. Scott Heron is perhaps most famous for coining the phrase, the revolution will not be televised, and as he explains in that interview, what is so fundamental to resistance and rebellion, and what cannot be captured, is the change that takes place in all of our thinking that really brings about large-scale structural change. When we begin to take a more critical look at problems surrounding us, the way we approach our lives altogether can change in a way that constitutes what is at the heart of a mindset of resistance. Moving ahead with today's show, I'd love to shed some light on another amazing historical figure. This is Wilma Mankiller. Wilma Mankiller was the principal chief of the Cherokee Nation from 1985 to 1995. She was the first woman to be elected as the chief of a major native tribe, which is a major feat in and of itself, but even more impressive was all that she accomplished during her tenure. She was born in Telequa, Oklahoma in 1945, and at age 11, her and her family were forced to move to San Francisco as part of a Bureau of Indian Affairs relocation program that promised natives work in big American cities. She began her career as an activist in San Francisco, when in 1969, a group of American Indians took over the federal prison of Alcatraz, claiming the island by right of discovery to expose the struggles of natives countrywide. This inspired her and eventually led her to serving as the director of Oakland's Native American Youth Center. She later moved back to Oklahoma, where she started to get involved in the Cherokee Nation. Her first project was with the small community of Bell, Oklahoma, which was the home of 200 families who had no access to running water. Mankiller enabled Bell residents to construct a 16-mile water line to finally give the community running water. She eventually took over the role as principal chief of the Cherokee Nation, where she led a population that more than doubled from 68,000 to 170,000. Throughout her tenure, she relentlessly advocated for improved education, health care, and housing services. Under her leadership, all of these outcomes improved as she worked fervently with the Environmental Protection Agency and the federal government to ensure that Cherokee best interests were being looked after. A quote of Wilma Mankiller's that really inspires me is this one. She says, and I quote, One of the things my parents taught me, and I'll always be grateful, is to not ever let anybody else define me but for me to define myself. Almost a decade after her death in 2010, Mankiller's husband, Charlie Soap, 
with the help of a couple of journalists, uncovered a collection of poems that Mankiller had written over the years, which has now been released in an anthology called Mankiller Poems, The Lost Poetry of Wilma Mankiller. She is a style of poetry that I am extremely fond of. She is very stern and direct with her verse, which gives her writing a powerful sense of urgency and vigor. Unfortunately, as these poems were released after her death, there are no recordings of her reciting these works. But fear not, because I have asked for the favor of my wonderful girlfriend, Miss Saffron Mears, to recite one of Mankiller's poems for us all. Saffron is a member of the United Nation in Northeast Wisconsin. So without further ado, here is Real People by Wilma Mankiller. Real People by Wilma Mankiller In the time of the ancients, we called ourselves real people. After countless seasons of civilization, we remain real people. We gather to speak about kinship, our relationship to the stars, the sacred fire, while the blue-veined talk on cell phones about mutual funds, the right schools, and always and forever, their looks and weight. Do they possess the ability to love or just play a role in dreary, predictable lives? Have they forgotten, if they ever knew, how to accept the friendship of the wind or love deeply and radically? Maybe they really are another species, not real people. The next person we will talk about today is author, scholar, and educator, Bell Hooks. Bell Hooks was born Gloria Jean Watkins and is best known for her writings on love, art, race, class, gender, history, mass media, feminism, and more. As you can see, she was an extremely accomplished writer, having published around 40 books that ranged widely in genre and subject matter. Hooks recently passed away in December of 2021, but throughout her lifetime, she was influenced by many individuals, such as James Baldwin and Lorraine Hansberry. But perhaps her most important influence was Sojourner Truth, an abolitionist and feminist most famous for her Ain't I a Woman speech, which inspired one of Hook's most prolific works, Ain't I a Woman, Black Women and Feminism. Interestingly enough, much of her time writing this book was spent here in Madison, Wisconsin, as she attended UW for her master's in English. Hooks was always a prolific and unapologetic speaker, but one of my favorite segments I have come across is from an interview with John Siegenthaler, where she talks about her book, All About Love, and how our relationships with each other shape our relationships at large as citizens of a nation. What do we teach our children about love? What is the miseducation we give them? And part of the miseducation we give them is that you can violate someone and then say you love them. And I, I think as we ponder why we are raising a nation of violent children, we, we have to ponder that miseducation about the nature of love. And, and one of the passages that I quote often in this book is a passage from the Bible, from the book of John, that says, anyone who does not know love is still in death. And we're at risk at being a culture that cultivates this sort of worship of death. And it is fascinating to me that, to me, when I think about the defining movement for social justice that we had in our culture that rocked the world it was a civil rights movement. The fact is there could be no end to apartheid in South Africa today had there not been a civil rights movement in the United States, whether we're talking about aborigines in Australia or so many people around the world that looked to the civil rights and freedom struggle here in the United States as an emblematic of justice. 
But the heart of that movement was an ethics of love. Um, when I began writing this book, I went back to Martin Luther King's Strength to Love, which was such a marvelous book. And, and he, he was one of the first leaders in our society to really talk about love not as a sentimental emotion. You know, many of my readers, my Bell Hooks readers, who are used to the hard-hitting, you know, social... Feminist. Exactly, <clears throat> have said to me, well, why love? And it's, I, it, you know, I, I, people have said to me, we hope we're not going to lose that, you know, that biting intervention. And I said, but to talk about love. And the relationship between love and ending domination, whether we're talking about racism, homophobia, um, class elitism, because a lot of the book talks about greed and how greed has made us less loving as a nation. I mean, why do we think welfare is bad? We should be triumphing as a nation that we have the resources um, at our disposal you know, to provide say, for people in love. You say there that that we now embraced uh, the uh, reform of welfare, not uh, on the basis uh, that there was needed compassion. We used welfare abuse as the excuse to cover up the fact that we've lost our compassion for those who have nots. Exactly. I mean, I have been so disturbed by the, seeing so many people of my generation who came out of radical thinking into a kind of thinking that says we can't give to others. People only appreciate what they work for. Or there's a lack of compassion, a hardening of the heart. Marianne Williamson began to talk about that in her book, The Healing of, of, of America. I mean, it's, it's this sense that the kind of love ethic, and I think people have to hear those two words in combination, love ethic, which means that it's the values. I mean, we talk about family values in this nation, but we don't talk about what are the values that underlie a love ethic, the sense of respect. I mean, I say to people, well, well love has to do with respect. When we, we look at children, particularly the violence of children against children in our nation right now, Part of what we're seeing is a lack of care, a lack of respect, a lack of understanding. We're seeing envy. I mean, envy is a crucial emotion connected to greed and that you want to destroy what you envy when you have a 10-year-old kid wanting to destroy another kid because that kid is more popular. Or that is something deep and profound. That is a deep and profound lovelessness. And we can't just talk about it in relationship to what parents are doing. We have to talk about it in terms of what we have been saying as a nation, what matters to us as a nation. I will now talk about an extremely important voice in America's struggle for equal rights for the gay community. Harvey Milk, a prominent figure in LGBTQ plus history, became the first openly gay elected official in California when he won a seat on the San Francisco Board of Supervisors in 1977. Milk was a charismatic advocate for LGBTQ plus rights, and he worked tirelessly to challenge discrimination and promote equality. One of his most famous moments came in 1978 when he delivered a powerful and impassioned speech known as the Hope Speech. In this speech, Milk urged LGBTQ plus individuals to come out and be their true selves, emphasizing the importance of visibility and unity in the fight for equality. His words resonated with many, inspiring them to embrace their identities and join the movement for LGBTQ plus rights. 
Tragically, Harvey Milk's life was cut short on November 27, 1978, when he, along with San Francisco Mayor George Moscone, was assassinated by Dan White, a fellow city supervisor. The assassination came as a great shock to the LGBTQ community in the entire nation. However, his legacy lived on as he became a symbol of resilience in the struggle for equal rights. His contributions to the equal rights movement are remembered and celebrated to this day, and his famous hope speech remains an enduring source of inspiration for those striving for a more inclusive and accepting society. I will play this speech for you all now. Our next voice is Rachel Carson. Carson was a pioneering environmentalist and marine biologist who made an undeniable mark on the world with her groundbreaking work, Silent Spring, published in 1962. This book raised the alarm about the widespread use of pesticides, particularly DDT, and their detrimental impact on the environment and human health. Carson's meticulously researched and eloquently written book shed light on the adverse effects of chemical pesticides, which were contaminating the food chain and causing harm to wildlife. She communicated to the public through her writing in a way that was easy to understand and showed clearly to the American people the impact of pesticide use on their health. Her work played a pivotal role in catalyzing the modern environmental movement leading to increased awareness about the need for pesticide regulation and a safer, more sustainable approach to pest control. 
Rachel Carson's advocacy in Silent Spring continue to influence environmental policy and inspire efforts to protect our planet for future generations. She stood behind her arguments in this short clip from a 1962 CBS Reports interview. Ms. Carson maintains that the balance of nature is a major force in the survival of man, whereas the modern chemist, the modern biologist, the modern scientist believes that man is steadily controlling nature. Now, uh, to these people, apparently, the, the balance of nature was something that was um, repealed as soon as man came on the scene. Well, you might just as well assume that you could repeal the, the law of gravity. The balance of nature is built of a series of interrelationships between living things and between living things and their environment. You can't just step in with some brute force and change one thing without changing a good many others. Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that we must never interfere, that we must not attempt to tilt that balance of nature in our favor. But unless we do bring these chemicals under better control, we are certainly headed for disaster. I will now talk about Dolores Huerta, who is an unsung hero of the American labor and civil rights movements. She's recognized for her pivotal role in co-founding the United Farm Workers, or UFW, union alongside Cesar Chavez in the 1960s. While Chavez is often the more well-known figure, Huerta's contributions were equally instrumental in advancing the rights of farm workers in California and beyond. She played a critical role in organizing strikes, boycotts, and other nonviolent protests to demand fair wages, better working conditions, and labor rights for farm workers, most notably during the successful grape boycott of the 1960s. Despite her significant impact, Dolores Huerta's leadership was often overshadowed by male counterparts like Chavez. Her advocacy for gender and racial equality within the UFW and her fearless activism was at times downplayed or marginalized. Nevertheless, Huerta's resilience and determination remained unwavering. She continued to fight for labor rights, women's rights, and social justice, ultimately leaving an enduring legacy. Her work has inspired generations of activists and underscored the importance of recognizing the contributions of women and people of color in social justice movements. Dolores Huerta's life and accomplishments exemplify the crucial yet often overlooked role of women in the struggle for civil and labor rights in the U.S., she is known for her iconic rallying cry, Si Se Puede, or Yes We Can, that inspired countless activists throughout all struggles. Another important figure in the farm workers' struggle was Larry Itliong, a remarkable Filipino-American labor leader, who played a central role in initiating the Delano Grape Strike in 1965, a pivotal event in the farm workers' struggle for better conditions and fair wages. While the strike is often associated with Chavez and the Mexican farm workers, it was in fact Larry Itliong and the Filipino farm laborers who first walked off the fields demanding better treatment. Their courageous act paved the way for the broader movement that would become the United Farm Workers. Sadly, the Filipino farm workers have been largely overlooked throughout history, despite their vital contribution to this landmark labor movement. It's crucial to recognize their resilience and dedication as their fight for justice, equal treatment, and improved conditions has left an undeniable mark on the history of labor and civil rights in the U.S. We can learn a great deal from the struggles of the past because they in fact tell us a great deal about the problems of today. 
I'm proud to be an American because there truly has never been a country like the one we live in today. A country where so many cultures and ethnicities share the same land. I'm proud to be an American because it allows me to shed light on the struggles of different groups all throughout the country. Struggles that still exist in large part today. I lament that I could not go over more resistant efforts and figures as there are countless that this great nation has both birthed and housed. But I encourage you all to research and find the voices that most resonate with you. Voices that you believe evoke a necessary and concise energy to bring about the changes that you see necessary at all levels, whether they be local, territorial, national, or international. So, that's all for today's episode of Radio Resistance. This week, I wanted to highlight the voices of many Americans who have provided great inspiration to me, your very own radio host, DJ Sunray. I hope you found some inspiration from these great people as well. Usually, the theme of this show tends to be international, but I thought it would be nice to give some American background as well. I would love to have another episode of this nature in the future, where I talk to people in my own life who inspire me, and who also evoke resistance in their lives. As tensions mount in this country, and all over the world, I hope we can all reflect on what resistance means in our society, and what we can all do to create a better world collectively. But for now, that's the end of our show for this week. I want to thank you for tuning in. As always, this has been your host, Sir Yavir, a.k.a. DJ Sunray, and we'll catch you next time on... Radio Resistance.